Welcome back to The Shorter, a podcast on the Shorter Catechism, where two pastors take 20-something months to confess their way through the 107 questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'm your host, Tommy Park, and I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Spindweber. What's going on, Tommy? What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the podcast. It's good to have you all here. Uh, Today, we're really excited about our episode. Uh, We want the podcast to help start a longer conversation for you with your friends, family, and your church family. And one of the ways we try to model this is every Thursday, we release an episode where we interview one of the experts on the question that uh, we're dealing with. And so today, we're questions 21 and 22 of the Shorter Catechism. And we have with us Dr. Brandon Crow. He's Associate Professor of New Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and also, fun fact, a fellow alum from RTS Orlando with one Tommy Park. Dr. Crow, do you want to confirm or deny that? Is that, is that true? I can neither confirm nor deny. Uh, okay. No, I, that, I can confirm that. That's true. That's true. Assuming he actually graduated. So I, I we, gra- we graduated together. Okay. Yeah. So, yes, I can confirm. <laughs> yeah. It's good to be Very with good. you. Thanks for having me on. Our pleasure. Well, Dr. Crow, just first um, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your family, where you served at Westminster. Church so uh, I'm from Alabama, and uh, I went to college in Birmingham at Sanford University. I married my wife after I graduated college, and we moved to Orlando after a little while, and I went to RTS Orlando, as you just mentioned, did an MDiv there, and then went overseas to the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, where I did a PhD in New Testament and Christian origins. From there was given the opportunity to teach at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And we have been here in Philadelphia ever since 2009. And I have four children, three boys and one girl. And I am ordained in the PCA. Yeah. Just to let you know, Brandon, or Dr. Crow, that we, uh, I call RTS uh, the O uh, for short. So... Uh, so, as you're aware, this is a, a podcast on the Shorter Catechism. Um, when were you just out of curiosity, because I wasn't really indu- introduced to the Catechism until later in life. You know, when were, uh, when were you first introduced to the Shorter Catechism, uh, and what have you learned uh, during your own personal study, and how has it benefited uh, the people around you as well? I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and I grew up with some good friends in the PCA, but I don't think that I really was introduced to the catechism probably until college. Uh, I'm sure I encountered it somewhere in college as I started attending the PCA church and learning more about Reformed theology, but I can distinctly remember the time after college, before I went to seminary, I started memorizing some of the answers, found them to be helpful, stumbled across Thomas Watson and uh, his body of divinity began in uh, the 17th century articulations of some of the more contemporary articulations that had become a little bit more familiar to me. And so I find it very helpful. And the, the approach I take now is if, if I'm trying to define a doctrine simply, I'll often go to the shorter catechism. The, dis- the distinctions, for example, between justification and sanctification. I'm teaching my children uh, a select number of the catechism questions, not necessarily all of them, mixing some of the catechisms, different types of catechisms and so forth, but using that to instruct my children. My wife and I, believe it or not, before we got married, we 
to spend time memorizing some of the catechisms. Uh, and uh, so she's got some of that in her as well. And at seminary, we were required to regurgitate some of them to graduate. But when it comes to being ordained, there really is no better way to prepare for many of the questions and to understand what we are saying we agree to and we believe in with our whole heart. Uh, no better way than studying the catechisms for a way to understand exactly what they do and don't mean. And so over the years, I've only come to love them more. And I find the confessional standards remarkably, remarkably precise and helpful and, and good in terms of its biblical theology and how accurate it is. It, to me, it's really remarkable. The more I've studied the scriptures, I haven't moved away from the catechisms. I've actually found how helpful they are. And it's, it's, to me, as I said, it's quite remarkable how good it is. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's refreshing. And I think uh, Terry Johnson, Dr. Johnson, referred to the catechism as us bringing it out of the attic uh, and kind of refreshing it and putting it on people's tables, as it were. And that's our hope in this, catech- in this podcast is to bring it out of the attic and put it back on the tables uh, for individuals and for families. Um, Another question out of just curiosity, do you have either a favorite shorter catechism question and answer or one that just kind of st- stands out uh, to you on a personal level? Well, I think it's fitting for the questions we'll talk about today because I've always found the discussions of the person and work of Christ really helpful in terms of how you think through these issues. And there's a lot of them, but all the way back to the covenant of life with Adam, the way that that's articulated the requirements of the obedience of Adam, and then the, the way it breaks down the work of Christ into the states of humiliation and exaltation, prophet, priest, and king, and the, the identity of the only redeemer of God's elect and so forth. All of these I find very helpful to get a handle on the work of Christ on our behalf. And then the second area that I find it to be helpful is in matters that continue to be debated, uh, justification, sanctification, and so forth where you have the concise definition of justification, I find so helpful. It's an act of God's free grace, whereas sanctification and the way the catechism frames it is a work of God's grace. And so you've got these very close connections between justification and sanctification, but some key distinctions as well. And I find them to be very contemporary in their helpfulness. I too found uh, those questions on prophet, priest, king, it's not really a way that I had thought of Christ before becoming reformed. And so I found those to be very rich myself to describe his work as our redeemer. So thank you for that. And so the questions that we have for you today, um, speaking who this redeemer is and, um, you know, sort of his person, uh, they're questions 21 and 22. Who is the redeemer of God's elect? The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God became man and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And then question 22 is, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. Now, I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Uh, but of course, if there's something that I'm skipping over or something that you think needs articulating, then please, by all means, uh, fill us in. But you know, in its characteristic cogency, um, 
questions 21 and 22 together, they explain to us what's called the hypostatic union or the two natures of Christ. Can you tell our listeners what Westminster means by two distinct natures and one person? Yeah, this is one of, at the heart of what the early church had to wrestle with. If you read the early church fathers, you're going to see that very early, they're understanding that Christ is divine and human. And that's not something that's invented in 451 at the Council of Chalcedon. But these are elements that, that have to be understood in their proper relationship to one another. And that is, uh, how can he, that is, how can Christ be fully God and fully man? And how, do, how does this work out in the incarnation? And so what you have the two natures, uh, and let me get the, the language right here. We're looking at uh, two distinct natures and one person forever. So the two distinct natures are a human nature and a divine nature. Uh, and yet these natures are not to be abstracted from the person. What does that mean? Well, the person who acts in the incarnation, it's not a generic human nature. It's the person of the Son of God. And so the person of the Son of God takes to himself a, we're going to see this in question 22, a true body and a reasonable soul without ceasing to be the Son of God. But in the incarnation, what we have, notice that that question begins with the, the only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is, first of all, the eternal Son of God. And so uh, one way that I think in maybe popular understandings uh, and well-meaning and even Christian, maybe even Reformed understandings in our churches uh, of the incarnation that can go astray is to think of Jesus as a combination of half man, half God, where um, it, it's, it, these things are, are equal. Well, they're not quite equal if what you mean by that um, downplays the priority of the person of the Son of God, if that makes sense. So the one who acts in the incarnation is the Son of God. And in the incarnation, you have the Son of God taking to himself a human nature without ceasing to be God in any way. He takes to himself a human nature, and so now it's fully God and now fully man in the incarnation. That's a new thing. But he never ceases to be the Son of God. And so the one who acts at every point is the Son of God, who is now it embodied in the incarnation with a fully human nature without sin, but otherwise a, a human nature just like ours. And yet the one who does this, the Redeemer, is we can identify him as the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way that, that that's clarified here is the eternal son of God. He never had a beginning, but there was a beginning to his taking a human nature. And that's the incarnation. So the two natures, the hypostatic union are two natures combined in the person. That is, uh, without confusing the natures, two distinct natures. They're not overlapping or, or mixed together. Uh, it doesn't become uh, uh, confused in any way where you have a third nature, like a half man, half God nature. That would be wrong. It's uh, the distinctness of the human and the divine natures are not mixed, as it were, but they are um, they are there together in the hypostatic. They are united. That's what the union, they are united in the incarnation. And the one who acts there is the son of God. That's really helpful because we see this language here, taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. And I think that what's in view here are those ancient views in the ancient church where you do, you have the person of the son of God sort of just taking up 
or being contained in a human fleshly container, but that's the extent of it. I think that's sort of at the heart of the Eutychian error, where the divine almost swallows up the, the human or, you know, he only occupies a body, but it really was a full and true humanity without destroying, right, the fact that it's the Son of God who's, who's acting here, right? That's right. And the, the reasonable, the true body, I think maybe that one's a bit clearer. We know what that means. I think a, a true body, he has all the, you know, it wasn't an appearance of a body. He really suffered. First John is very uh, uh, big on this. And the early church fathers like Ignatius and Antioch, so they're, they're going to talk a lot about the suffering of Christ and his body. These are important, but also the reasonable soul. And so you can understand the hypostatic union wrongly if you think that because it's the son of God who acts, uh, he had no human soul. It was, only, it was only a divine person who used a human nature in a way that was less than complete or something like that. But the reasonable soul means he has a human soul. If we have souls, then Jesus had a human soul. Now, this doesn't still answer every question. There are still many things to work out. But this was at the heart of uh, the Apollinarianism is an early church heresy that denied that Jesus had a human soul. Uh, this was roundly condemned uh, by, I believe it was 381. And what you have in this confirmation the understanding that it is the Son of God who is acting, but that does not uh, downplay the importance of Christ having a human soul. So that's what the reasonable soul uh, basically means. And, you know, for many people like myself, and uh, I think everyone here, you know, we grew up in Protestant churches, though not Reformed. These were churches that really stressed the importance of the uh, incarnation, death, resurrection, and the bodily ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. I can vividly remember that it was only when I came to a Reformed church that I realized a pretty serious gap in my own understanding of the Incarnation, because as the Catechism says, the Incarnation didn't cease at the Ascension. Jesus is still incarnate in heaven. I can, I can still remember the preacher who said, Jesus' body is in heaven right now. Um, can you explain the significance of Christ continuing to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever? Um, why does Jesus need to still be the hypostatic God-man post-resurrection and ascension? I think, there's a, I think it's a good observation in a number of ways we could answer that question. Uh, one is he is our high priest in heaven who makes personal bodily intercession for us in the innermost sanctum of the heavenly sanctuary. This is Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, and other texts in Hebrews, which emphasizes that our high priest has a nature like ours, and he's overcome sin, whereas we have fallen to sin. And so he continues, uh, and that priestly capacity, and in some ways, ultimately in heaven is that priestly capacity that, that he is able to minister in a unique way in his heavenly person, uh, in his heavenly sanctuary, in, his, in the embodied person. Uh, in the incarnation. It's a permanent union. The hypostatical union is it's a permanent union. And so there's also the relationship here to the destiny of humanity, which is we were called in Adam to everlasting life. And this is part of the, the glorious uh, vision that God sets before Adam in the beginning. And yet we know that Adam did not attain the condition of the covenant, which was 
a perfect, personal, entire, exact, and perpetual, then I'll leave one out, obedience, uh, as the confession talks about helpfully. And so what you have, though, is still you, you have in Christ the new Adam, the one who takes humanity to its intended goal. And you see this also in Hebrews 2. We don't yet see everything under uh, the feet of humanity, but we do see Christ, uh, who suffered for a while and now is crowned with glory and honor and has been exalted over all, uh, defeating death. And so by, by being embodied as our high priest, by defeating sin and death, and by rising again and going to heaven and, and interceding for us in God's presence at the right hand, the place of intimacy uh, between God and humanity that Christ has gone before us as our forerunner. This is the term archegos in the New Testament, pioneer, uh, prodromos, forerunner, uh, pioneer, perfecter, or not per- perfect, the author. Uh, some of these words in Hebrews and in Acts, it talks about Christ going before us. So he goes before us, and because he has a nature like ours, where he is, and in that context, we can be as well, because there is a, as again, as Hebrews 2 says, he is not ashamed to call us brothers, because he shares the nature that we have. And so given that, um, the word I'm looking for, solidarity between Christ and his people, that as a man, an exalted man who is still son of God, he lifts humanity to its intended destiny, enables us to have deepest fellowship with God in an everlasting sense. And he will return bodily, the same body that he was crucified in, he was raised in, and now is glorified in heaven. And that same body he will return in the glorified state, and we will have new heavens and new earth and and fellowship and, and no sin, and all of those things will be accomplished because of our, what our high priest has done for us in a bodily form. Amen. I had one ancient church uh, history professor. He was quoting somebody, maybe loosely, uh, one of the early church fathers. He needed to become like us uh, so as to redeem us, or what he could or did not assume he could not redeem, um, right. which I always thought was a nice, helpful, almost catechetical statement there. And then that's now, another way. I don't, may not have said that. Uh, that's another way to put it as well. Yeah. Yeah. So my last question and we're going to come back to this, this idea of identifying sort of, you know, a la Hebrews 4 style from that high priestly angle. So Tommy's going to take that question. But before moving on there, uh, you know, the fundamentalist modernist controversy for some of our listeners, they might not know that that was a controversy that really plagued the Presbyterian church in the early to mid 20th century. Uh, it's where we get J. Gress of Machen and the birth of the Orthodox Presbyterian church and later after that, the PCA. In the fundamentalist modernist controversy, there were five fundamentals of the Christian faith that fundamentalists were expected to sign on to. And one of those was the virgin birth of Christ. And our catechism stresses this as well. It says that he became uh, man by taking to himself this true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her. Dr. Crow, why do Christians need to believe in the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ? I think the first reason to uh, not to be um, elementary, but because the Bible teaches it. And so uh, on the one hand, it's, it's, if the Bible teaches this doctrine, is it up to us to reconfigure it or explain it away? And the answer is no. We accept it by faith. That doesn't mean we can answer all of the questions about how this happened. But if the Bible attests it, uh, then it's up to us to believe it. So there's one reason. And another um, 
a point here is you, you have so many things actually hinge on this. Uh, Irenaeus, the early church father, says, if someone doesn't believe in the birth of a virgin, how can they believe in the resurrection of the dead? They're both miraculous events, as it were. And so you have in Christ, I think there's a far-reaching implications here when you put your systematic and your biblical theology together. Uh, because if you believe in the federal representation of Adam, then all of those in Adam who are born naturally are represented by Adam. And I think this is the implication of Romans 5, 12 to 21. But if Christ is not represented by Adam, how could he be a true person and yet not be represented by Adam? And what we have in the New Testament is there was something like a new creation with Jesus. He comes in continuity with us and he, he, um, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, as Paul says in Romans 8, but he wasn't a sinner. And you see here, and it's implied also in Luke 1, 31 to 35, the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary, and that which is conceived in her is holy, the Son of God. And so there is a connection between the virginal conception, that's the technical term, we call it virgin birth, and the, uh, the, the sinlessness of Jesus. There is a connection. It does a lot of things, but one of the things it does is it, it shows how Jesus could be truly human truly human, yet not a sinner, and not federally represented by Adam. So there's a new head of a new covenant people, as it were, when Christ comes as the new Adam. And, and in Luke's gospel, you are going to see that, that um, son of Adam, son of God, is the way he ends his genealogy in Luke chapter 3. And Romans 5, um, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 28, and 45 to 49, you have two men, Adam and Christ. You have, as Thomas Goodwin said, uh, Paul writes in Romans 5 as if there had only been two men in world history and hanging from the belts uh, uh, of everyone or Adam, Adam and Christ have these belts, right? And everyone's hanging from one of their belts. You're either in Adam or in Christ. And so that federal uh, representation, by federal I mean covenantal representation of Adam and Christ is closely related to the virgin birth. You have the, um, the new creation that comes with Christ. You have the full humanity. You also have, by the way, G no confusion here about who is the father of Jesus. Um, and not to overplay this point, but Jesus has a father, as it were. I mean, Joseph adopts him, it seems. But you have son of God preeminently. It, it was fitting for him not to have an earthly father for that reason as well. There's all sorts, of, I think, of, of systematic reasons you could bring together. But it is important because the Bible teaches it. And when you pull that, if you were to pull that away, it's not like it doesn't affect other doctrines. It does, including the sinlessness of Christ, uh, the full humanity, the consistency of the New Testament witness, and things like that. And if, if, um, if anyone really is interested in that question, um, I did write a little booklet on that question about seven or eight years ago called, Was Jesus Born of a Virgin? And I think it's about $5 and somewhere. But if anyone is interested in that question, I've tried to answer some objections and sort of boil down some of the key arguments in a very short format. The, uh, key, the key work on that question, and not that you asked, but uh, J. Gresson Machen's Virgin Birth of Christ from the 1930s, that's still in many ways the classic work. And that, that's a very much a scholarly tour de force that still has to be taken into consideration uh, for those who want to disagree with it. Yeah, for, for those of you who might get a coronavirus check, buy two books. <laughs> by Brandon Crow on the virgin birth or the virginal conception and Jay Gresson Machen. So go out. 
Well, I'm I'm channeling Machen, so some of that will be uh, some of that will be a, a paring down of what uh, his approach. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Crow. Uh, one thing that comes to my mind, particularly on a college campus, uh, dealing with students, you know, usually with these things are so like so lofty, so like you know, just the whole idea we can't explain everything, and so you kind of hear back pretty quickly. Then why should I study this at all? Uh, this, you know, it's so so glorious that it's not really practical. So what would you say to maybe any believer really, uh, but maybe even a young college student or a new believer that's trying to grasp these hefty things and putting them into practical ways? How, you know, how would you, you know, how would you make this practical? This whole idea of two natures, you know, he's without sin, virgin birth, you know, we can't make sense of it all, but at the same time, how can it, how does it all kind of come together? Well, I think at the outset, I would say, I hope we want to learn more about Jesus. So I, I hope that that argument doesn't need to be made. Uh, but what, why all the technical language? And the short answer is because a lot of people spent hundreds of years, I mean, collectively, working these things out to be sure we get it right. Because they understood that what is at stake here is the nature of salvation and the nature of truth versus error. Because every every uh, heretical religion that's a Christian heresy has a view on Christ, but they're not all saving, and they're not all true. They're not all powerful, if I could put it that way. And so if we want to know who it really is that saves us, we need to know, is he fully divine, or is he simply a created son of God in some, the way that some heresies would teach? Uh, we need to understand uh, to what degree does he understand us? To what degree can he help us? And the more we learn about who he really is, the more we will love him and the greater we will appreciate our salvation. Uh, some truths are necessary for salvation and truths about Christ are right at the heart of that. We need to understand rightly because it really does ma matter. It makes a difference whether we believe in Christ rightly or wrongly. Everybody will have a view on Christ uh, who has any kind of a connection to the, a biblical religion, whether it's a true one or not. Uh, but what really in many ways, the dividing line is what do we think about Christ? Orthodoxy and heresy, in many ways, comes down to this question. Uh, and it, it, it is incumbent upon us to make sure we get this right. Uh, and to make sure... It's incumbent upon us to make sure we get this right. Uh, and to, take, to show the care with the scriptures that they require. Uh, we are not free to play you know, kind of footloose and fancy free with the scriptures. We need to get them right. And what church history shows us is that you can't just plop down in your, on your couch and open the Bible and get everything about Christ right just in about 15 minutes. It takes work. It takes effort. And John Frame used to say in class that, you know, all things being clear in Scripture, the perspicuity of Scripture doesn't mean it's clear in your armchair. It means it takes work. It takes reading books. And if anything is worthy of our attention, and if anything is worthy of, of getting the technical details right, and I don't want to overstate it, but surely that is the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Just maybe kind of last question here. Just, you know, where, where would you go? Where would you tell people to invest in this uh, study of Christ? Uh, you mentioned your book on the virgin birth uh, that will try to grab a copy and maybe give that away to our listeners. Uh, but what are some other resources that you would point people to to, to, to gleam uh, to, at Christ and who he is? The first place is obviously read the New Testament. I mean, the whole Bible, but read the New Testament, read the scriptures well, 
in scholarship, they say nothing takes the place of primary sources. And that's the case here as well. Only the scriptures are inspired and God breathed. And so that's the place to start. Uh, read, read what Paul says about Christ in his letters. Read the Gospels. You know, read the book of Acts. Uh, read the book of Hebrews. And, and you can supplement that with a good commentary, uh, whether you, you invest in some you know, good commentaries or find some online. It'd be easier probably to find them in print to know they're trustworthy. So that's one place to start. Uh, now, where would I go? I mean, it's really hard to beat Herman Bovink, Volume 3 in Reformed Dogmatics for questions on the person and the work of Christ. And I see it right there behind one of our hosts uh, on, on the, the, the shelf there. Volume 3 of Bovink, and all of Bovink is, Jimmy, nothing beats the scriptures, but um, Volume 3 of Bovink is, is outstanding. That's summarized in the wonderful works of God published by Westminster Seminary Press re-released recently. So if someone doesn't want to get volume three or all four volumes, go there. Um, Francis Turretin is extremely hard to read uh, in terms of it takes forever, uh, but it is worth it. And uh, he's very precise uh, and will, will help you think through if you want to go deeper. So you could look there. Uh, even Gerhardus Voss's more recent reformed dogmatics is very strong on Christology. And so on the person and the work of Christ, those are a few systematic theological works. Uh, uh, Bob Lethem, Robert Lethem's recent systematic theology is accessible and helpful as well on issues of Christology. Um, so I, I would look at some systematic theology works. You can find some old works from the ancient church, like Irenaeus. If you really want to be you know, hip or trendy, you can look up Irenaeus and, and go look at books three to five of Against Heresies or even his little book called A Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching. Or if you want to go with something shorter, look at Ignatius of Antioch and his seven letters and, and see the way they're dealing with it. Look at another church father that's really important for Christology is Cyril of Alexandria. His commentaries on John are back in print. Um, Athanasius of Alexandria on the Incarnation. So there's a lot of things from the early church that deal with this question of uh, who Christ is that would be helpful. And that may be too much. Uh, what else? So systematic theological works are going to be helpful. Uh, more limited study. John Owen, if you look at volume one in his Banner of Truth edition, he's got two works on Christology there, Meditations and Discourses on the Glory of Christ, and then something called Christologia, which is very good. And so there's a Puritan for you. Um, another way to go is simply look at the Confession. Uh, look at chapter seven and eight or so in the Confession. Look at the shorter catechism, the larger catechism, the Heidelberg catechism. These are quicker places to look that are full of good things. And so as it happens, I've, I'm actually in the middle of writing a book on the person and work of Christ. So that's not anywhere near complete. Uh, but these are questions that I'm asking as well. Where, where do we go to find this? And um, there's a lot of help in primary sources. I didn't mention Calvin, but Calvin's Christology is, is wonderful as well in the institutes and his commentaries. Uh, those are a few places, depending on what people have access to. Um, so from the most, the most difficult would be Turretin, probably, from what I just mentioned. And, and the least difficult uh, might be something like Ignatius of Antioch, because they're shorter. Well, I know that uh, another Westminster Seminary, well, not Westminster, Princetonian in B.B. Warfield also wrote The Person and Work of Christ. That's also up there on the shelf. Yeah. And uh, I, you, you noticed uh, Bovink and Turretin, they were right next to Hodge. So. You know, I, I don't see Hodge, but uh, he's, he's in the uh, the death the, the 
old dust jacket. Okay, there, yeah. So Charles Hodge is good, of course. Um, I think I bought three volumes hardback for about twenty dollars one time. Uh, and yeah, Hodge is good. Burke, I mean, Burkhoff will basically summarize Bob Inc. So if someone has access to, I mean, it's not that I don't mean that negatively, yeah. uh, but if you have a copy of Burkhoff, then you can find more summarized, more concise discussions than Bob Inc. If you've never read Bob Inc., you may think, is this a systematic theology? Because he just, he just sounds like he's rambling sometimes. He just goes on and on and on, but it's a more of a conversational style that you'll find in Bob Inc. And Burkhoff is outlined. One A, one B, you know, is, is very concise. Yeah. And, and, and those were all super helpful resources. So thank you. And, you know, your explanation for why we ought to study this, you know, just the devotional nature of it. Certainly as Christians, we would want to learn of our Savior so as to love him. You know, it's necessary for our salvation. And um, yeah, these are just wonderful things for us to ponder in a, in a devotional, doxological manner. Of course, we'd want to know Christ better as he saved us. So Dr. Crow, thanks so much for joining us today. We enjoyed having you on the podcast and we enjoyed having all of you listen with us. Till we talk next time, keep it short. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? The Son of God became man By taking to himself a true body And a reasonable soul Being conceived By the power of the Holy Spirit In the womb of the Virgin Mary Born of her, yet without sin.